Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. And this is our, it's our end of year broadcast, isn't it? Let's see, next week we'll be off, right? Got it. Guys, I hope you're sitting down. This is a perfect time to binge, start from the beginning, start listening to the podcast or watching the videos. You can do like a stroll down memory lane. That's right. Lock yourself in a room with no food or water and see if you can get through the entire yeah. useful idiot series without actually, you know. I mean, I'm going to say water. Nutrition. I'm going to say water and also some kind of uh, bedpan situation because. A bedpan situation yeah. might be good. Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise, right. Doesn't work out too well for grownups. Yeah. To, um, yeah. Works out great for kids, though. For kids, yeah, but even the diaper you got to change. Oh, true. But yeah. they're not. So, they're not going to want to watch useful idiots from the beginning to end. Not right. a lot of kid-friendly mm-hmm. content. Um, s- sad news: John Le Carre died. You know, I can't remember who was doing it, but somebody was just somebody was just a couple of days ago was basically saying that John Le Carre is not a good writer, and I, I I get that because his books can be a little bit difficult to read, but. Um, I always really enjoyed them, and the plots are amazing. And I never read him actually. You never read him yet. Yeah, well, I started *The Constant Gardener*. Mm-hmm. I saw that movie. I liked it, and I also saw what's it, *Tinker Tink, Tinker*. Taylor Soldier Spy. Yeah. Which I could not. Un- I mean, I could not understand what the hell was happening at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Could, well, that's do other people, yeah. or is that kind of his lane, or? Oh, a lot of people don't understand the plot of that one. He birthed a lot of great movies. Um, I would say *The Spy Who Came In from the Cold* with Richard Burton. Oh uh, yeah, no. black and white film, great, great movie. So, so lots to get to. I guess we should just do it, right? Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Should we start uh, off with the four basic food groups? Four food groups and Democrats suck. And I, I got a good one. I, I, I wrote a piece this week, and uh, you know what? I'm going to be self-promotional for good once. because Dan, you Dan, never are. You really yeah, Dan, aren't. Dan, can we call up the uh, the headline from my uh, Substack piece from the other day? So here's what happened. Um, right after they passed this new COVID relief package which is really two bills, Monday afternoon. Uh, and um, and I, I got a call from a, a staffer on the Hill who was like going out of his mind and basically saying, if you go back and look at the chronology, the Democrats basically negotiated against themselves going back months so that the relief package that people are ultimately going to get is by a factor of three or four, maybe even higher, lower than what it would have been had they negotiated correctly or or had they been willing to take a, a hit like in the form of allowing Donald Trump a headline or two along the way. So just so people know the basic outlines of this, the 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 deal that they agreed upon is two bills. One is $748 billion uh, and that's going to include things like unemployment insurance and other, other stuff. And then there's a separate bill for $160 billion for state and local aid uh, so this is going to be voted as two two different things. If you go back and look at the original Democratic wish list, which was uh, the Heroes Act, uh, which was passed in the House, I think way back in May, which is $3.4 trillion bill, that had $1.13 trillion in state and local aid in it, in that ask. And it had everything from $1,200 checks for people to all kinds of other programs that they wanted. The Mitch McConnell then countered with something he called the Heels Act, which is hilarious. That he called H-E-E-L-S? it H E E. No, it's H E A L S. Would have been good. Would have been good, but and it, even though it was way lower, it was about a trillion dollar deal. It did include the twelve hundred dollar checks, and so this sort of set the parameters of like where everybody was negotiating wise. It was going to be like a trillion dollars versus 
3.4 trillion dollars and then the, the idea was they were going to meet somewhere in the middle democrats went on to uh, pass a new version of the heroes act that was 2.2 trillion dollars and right around then is when trump was getting in all kinds of scandals and trouble and I, I think it was roughly contemporaneous with when he actually got covid remember, do you remember he was started plummeting in the polls around then yeah he was saying he was saying things like you know only old people die of exactly right yeah yeah exactly so he's he, suddenly he's such desperate bad pr such a bad move yeah yeah oh, i mean yeah, he was yeah. he was awful at this so he's desperate all of a sudden to actually get a headline and the white house in, in the person of steve mnuchin and trump they come out with a 1.8 trillion dollar proposal in october and the democrats just shat all over it pelosi had had dismissed a, no, a number of proposals uh, before this, but the $1.8 trillion plan, which remember is like only 4 trillion below, uh, 400 billion below where the Democrats were at that point. She dismissed on a number of grounds, but one of the main reasons was that the aid to states and localities was only $300 billion. And she, and, and she insisted that it, she couldn't go any lower than 436 billion on that. She said the Mnuchin offer of 300 billion was sadly inadequate. So they rejected that. Long story short, they end up not doing a deal before the election. Then the Democrats, Pelosi and Schumer, decide to put Joe Manchin and Mark Warner in charge of negotiations. Oh, the and best. these are the most, the most conservative, most austerity-minded members of the, the Democratic best. caucus in the Senate. They end up doing this. They, they have a, a bipartisan committee that puts together this deal. And it ends up, remember she said that 300 billion for states right. and localities was, the was way too low. Yeah. They end up at 160 billion as part of a separate bill, which incidentally may not pass. They're, they're already signaling uh, Steny Hoyer uh, and, and Dick Durbin in the Senate, both signal that they're willing to pass the $748 billion bill without the $160 billion bill. So in other words, the Democrats are already signaling that they're willing to take zero on state and local aid. That's called the Steny Dick. <laughs> the Steny Dick? <laughs> yeah. They're going to take a Steny Dick. Yeah. Take a Steny Dick. Yeah. Uh, and then here's the other fun part about this, which is that the $748 billion bill um, contains $560 billion in offsets. So it really just includes most of the money in it is money that they already appropriated from the CARES Act that just hasn't been spent yet. So there's only $188 billion of new money in the $748 billion deal. So they're going to end up with a deal that's probably going to be $188 billion in new money when they rejected probably three or four times that at various junctures leading up to the election. It could have been worse. What's the final amount? $748 billion. And, the, and it's not voted on yet. Right. So, okay. And, and what was the thing that they rejected? They rejected a $1.8 trillion okay. proposal, which to be completely fair, was a proposal by the White House. And it wasn't clear where McConnell was going to be on that. Right, right. However, my strong suspicion is that that would have passed. Right. Well, okay. look, it could have been worse because that- That's that the Senate. Yes. It could have been worse. That money that they're that they're now, you know- offering could have been in the other direction in other words they could have passed a bill making people pay that making the people oh, pay making, that. People, making people pay back yes right. that amount of money so yes. you know it could have been worse like 
We yes. should just be thankful that it went in the correct direct. That it's going in the correct direction. That is true, and and, and uh, we should also point out that there is, although there aren't twelve hundred dollar checks in, in this bill, so there aren't any. There's no direct payment. Right stuff uh there is there is one nice thing in there and dan if we go back to the piece just for a second this is is a little line that my source uh found it's at the very end of the summary of the agreement and so they didn't do the 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 checks for ordinary people but this is what they did put in there's a little a little clause in there that says they're going to that it would allow intelligence and defense contractors to have flexible contracts during the COVID 19 pandemic which is officially is basically for saying uh, those defense and intelligence contractors who aren't working right now are going to continue to get paid. Oh, when good. They yeah. Yeah. So hey, look, they care about gig workers. They care about contractors. That's right. I mean, it's they're practically people who work for Uber or they are. Or, yeah, they're Uber waitresses. Right? They're Uber Uber Ollies almost. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So this is like I don't know. It, it's so classically the the Democrats and. You know, not not to put too fine a point on it, but this is it's a little bit ominous in terms of what you think might be the future of how the Democrats are going to operate in the in the post Trump era. You because, mean austerity operating like yeah. or yeah, this is this is a signal that, OK, we won. So now we're going to now we're going to do all that belt tightening that we like. Suddenly we're going to be budget conscious. Right. What did uh, they call what they say? There's nothing in the cupboard. What, 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 what did um, Biden's advisor say? I forgot. It was God, a deficit what? hawking thing to say the cupboard is bare the cupboard is bare right we should rip out their cupboards seriously they need to be afraid right i can't stand these people i'm sorry i really can't i mean it's worse than i thought it would be i thought there would be pandering i thought there'd be gestures i thought there'd be you know like the most symbolic um attempts to not come off as the absolute ghouls that they are i believe that's the policy that's the wonk wonkish term ghouls yes ghoul right and, and and it's a little bit not smart too. like, OK, so just to take a couple of things side by side yeah. back in October when Mnuchin was offering this one point eight trillion dollar deal. Might remember friend of show Rohana uh, at the Did you time. Say Rohana? Is it Rohana? Rohana, yeah. You, Rohana? you sounded like Amy Goodman pronouncing. Yeah. <laughs> also, it's going to sound Iranian. Yeah. Rohana, <laughs> Rohana, yeah. <laughs> Bro, we got to get you back on the show, by the way. Yeah, that's right. We do. And in fact, if he wants to complain about this, he can. So he basically said that he thought that at that time there was room to for a deal to be made. And he said there was a moral obligation for us to do it. Right. Uh, and of course, they ignored him. So now what happens now they do this and there's no twelve hundred dollar checks in there. And who's who's talking about the twelve hundred dollar checks? There's really just a couple of politicians. One of them is Bernie Sanders, obviously, who is. Uh, basically saying that the people, uh, that the legislature shouldn't go home until they pass that. Uh, but the other one is Josh Hawley, right? There you go, and, yeah. And so if they if they end up doing what everybody is saying that they're likely to do, which is not pass the state and local aid portion, they're going to not pass the state and local aid portion, um, among other things, on the excuse that they need the money to pay for the $1,200 checks. But... They're going to do that and then not put the $1,200 checks in there. That's the most likely outcome, right? And so then what's going to happen is the Josh Josh Hawley is going to turn this into a Republican issue, yep. right? Which is, you know, again, Mitch McConnell was was terrible on this issue all through all summer, right? right? But you know now the Democrats are in the driver's seat and they're 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 going to punt this away. Yeah, 
And then also they're going to do that terrible. I don't know if the Democrats will do this, right? But the cheerleaders, like online cheerleaders, pundits are going to pretend it's like a Republican position. They love doing that. They love that tainting it. Same, like Ro Khanna went on Fox News because, you know, how dare he try to reach the largest cable news audience. Oh, and everybody, yeah. Everyone, exactly. yeah. I mean, it's just absurd. I can't stand this thing. We have to have a term for it. I mean, I guess it's just guilt by association, but if there's something else, it's like, because a Republican takes this position, therefore it's a Republican position when really the biggest, bigger story is like, why aren't more Democrats doing this? Right, right. Yeah, I, I, I can I can understand the argument for, OK, let's not do universal basic income or whatever it is. But, but this is like an emergency. Yeah. People can't pay the rent. They're going to be out of their homes. And, and you know, the, right. The, You're, I mean, it's just a self-preservation thing for Dems. It's not that. Yeah. I mean, I, I also do, I, I pose UBI unless it's attached to uh, Medicare for all. Right. That's my that's, that's my line in the sand on it. That's your line um, in the sand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We have Yang back on, by the way. Yang gang, get on it. Before he becomes mayor of New York. Also, I just have to make a confession, which is that Mark Warner, we once publicly kissed on the cheek. Not like, that was not the event. I was at Netroots Nation. I brought him on to speak and, you know, you we did it. I mean, it was like, I guess that's kind of weird now that I'm saying it. But it didn't see, the kiss part wasn't weird. Kind of is weird, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Did, were there sparks? No, not at all. He looks like a... He, he's the only, I don't know how you could manage to both look like a platypus and not be adorable, but he pulls it off somehow. <laughs> non-adorable platypus? Yeah, non-adorable platypus. And, uh, Actually, it was that a, should be the New York Times capsule description. Vir, Vir, Virginia's non-adorable, no, yeah. it should be non-adorable uh, platypus Senator Mark Warner D. Virginia. Yeah, that's what it should be, yeah. All right, what do we have for Republican suck? For Republican suck, we just have these little snappy items, twin stories, because I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't kind of if I didn't center Trump's various awful things. So we got Trump rolls back Endangered Species Act, removes habitat protections of at-risk animals, reading at Democracy Now! With just over one month left in his presidency, Trump is gutting the Endangered Species Act by rolling back habitat protections for at-risk species, including grizzly bears, whooping cranes, and Pacific salmon. The new rule narrows the definition of habitat to areas where species currently live, but not those where animals might move because of the climate crisis or areas where they have previously lived that could be restored. The policy group Environment America said in a statement, animals that have already lost so much of the land they once roamed, now they face an uphill climb from competition with invasive species, the effects of global warming, and the lack of genetic exchange between fractured habitats. This new rule ratchets up the danger, making even modest recovery efforts unworkable for many species that have already been decimated by human development. And then it has a photo of two kind of like scrawny looking grizzly bears. See, my problem with this is just from a kind of PR perspective, I don't know if whooping cranes, grizzly bears, and Pacific salmon. Okay, I like Pacific, I like salmon, okay. Although I think it's a kind of overrated fish. I just, don't, these don't tug at my heartstrings the way that like a panda, uh, a really? polar bear, even though polar bears are kind of dicks. But yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, I don't know. Do you think grizzly, grizzly bears are, are scary? I, I, I'm, I'm very pro grizzly bear. All right. Well, I don't know how much. I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty pro whooping crane too. What? It sounds like a disease. Whooping no, crane. Whooping cough. I know, but it sounds like they spread it. They whoop down, then you get the whooping cough. Coughing whooping cranes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no. I mean, this is a. It's obviously bad. And why? Why do it? 
you know? Well, I do. On, on I love, this out. is like you, I feel like you're about to say something that it's obviously a bad preface. Reminds me of my own preface when I was responding to the police molesting a dead person. And I was like, it's obviously bad, but, but so I'm no, waiting no, for you to there, launch there, into there's, some. There's no but here. I, I, I'm, I, I'm in favor of saving endangered species and I'm not in favor of, you know, engaging their dead bodies sexually. Right. I'm not, look, I'm not in favor of that. Oh, perfect example. But if given the choice between killing them off and, and letting people do what they will with their carcasses, I think the moral path is clear. Yeah. Um, and then we have another story. So that's Trump being a total terrible person towards uh, animals. And then here's Trump being a totally terrible person towards humans. Uh, new Trump admin rule will send asylum seekers to wait in El Salvador despite dangers. In immigration news, a new rule is set to go into effect, which would send some asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border to El Salvador instead of letting them receive humanitarian protection in the U.S. The Trump administration implemented similar deals with Guatemala and Honduras. Immigrant and human rights advocates say the policy puts already vulnerable migrants in dangerous situations. Yes, it does. And, you know... It's always like extra terrible with, with uh, Central America because we did so much to um, ruin those countries, <clears throat> ruin the countries in Central America. So it's just like that much more of a disgusting thing to do. Right. But it'll, it will tickle the fancy of uh, conservatives because now the upside of seeking asylum in the United States is, is eliminated because you, now you don't even get to show up and wait in jail for your case. Right, lovely, so. the lovely conditions, the lovely incentives. Those are both bad things. So, yeah. So we've done our duty. So isn't that terrible as me, right? Yeah. Uh, and look, I, 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 we're using a, a submission from a viewer right. uh, for, for this segment, and I, but I think it's a good one. So, uh, Dan, if we could see the tweet from Super at Super Freak TV. Tag. I was going to say, guys, we don't see unless you use the hashtag, but they did. So, useful idiots pod. Thank you, Super Freak TV. Yeah, you got to use the hashtag useful yeah. idiots uh, useful idiots pod. So, this is basically just a montage of um, what visiting Santa looks like for kids oh, in no. the coronavirus era. So, he's either not really a Santa, or he's behind like you know the same kind of plexiglass right. that you would see like a like a basking oh shark oh my god or, just so people know this is like a twitter images you'll see that you know we got santa behind who's like try, trying to make an impression on the kids but he's behind the thick glass uh, oh wow santa encased in a in like a plastic sphere but that i like that because it kind of has a wintry igloo it's like uh, it's a, that one globe. works for me it's a snow globe that works they did right. very good work there. I actually really like that one. It cuts down. Aren't they kind of, I feel, always feel like it's a little weird and pervy, the sitting on Santa's lap. So maybe that's another upside. But yeah, that, but that's part of the tradition of Christmas. That's part of the charm. Pervy yeah, Santas. The, yeah, pervy Santas with-, with And if with, you oppose uh, it, you post, you're fighting the war on Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, you put your 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 child on Santa's throbbing man shaft and- Oh my God, his go his chimney, his chimney, Matt. <laughs> his Let's chimney, his, his, his throbbing chimney. There's one way of looking at this, which is like, it's Christmas spirit just overcoming right. the, the obstacles. Well, what could it be? He sees you through his mask. I, I'm not getting the, <laughs> it's not the right- um, he yeah. sees you through the plexiglass. Yeah, or the 12 days of Christmas, you know. Five ventilators. Right, yeah, exactly. Four, four hand sanitizers. Three, three protective masks, two, yeah. two Moderna shots. And, and uh, we got to build towards that. I know we'll, what. We'll What's build, the worst? We'll build towards it. Yeah. 
All right. Well, that's that. So what do we that's have for that. Isn't That Weird? For Isn't That Weird, Dan, if we could just go to the videotape. So uh, for people who can't, who can't see who people for people who cannot see or, or are not watching or read right uh the this is a youtube link and it says a recipe for seduction oh man it already premiered we gotta watch it uh a recipe for seduction presented by kentucky fried chicken lifetime are we sure this isn't it's not a parody because life it's, it's under the lifetime youtube channel okay what the hell are you doing a Lifetime original mini-movie. You don't answer my proposal, and now you're not answering my call. I think I'm falling for the new chef. She's <laughs> <laughs> falling for Harley. The cook? Leave Jessica alone and skip town. He has a secret recipe. Some secret recipe. A secret recipe? <laughs> Spare me. We all have our secrets. <laughs> if you marry my daughter, I promise there'll be more long weekends in your future. Mom, I have to tell you something. We have a problem. Secrets out, chicken man. I'll take care of this. Learning <laughs> everything! Just kill him already! Who the hell are you? Harlan Sanders, the new chef. Mario Lopez is Colonel Sanders. <laughs> for seduction premieres December 13th at noon, only on Lifetime. Presented by Kentucky Fried Chicken. Also, I like that it premieres at noon. <laughs> What, what the hell? I really thought that that was a joke. Okay. No way. So just to, to, to explain, that has Mario Lopez of many, you know, of uh, Saved by the Bell fame. He plays the, sh the cook who the daughter is falling for. It's Colonel um, Sanders, like, based, but it's a modern flair on it, right? It's also post-racial. His hair is like, it's not white. It's a gray color. But when I say gray, it looks like they just put baby powder in his hair. Yeah, like no, it's that's not a good natural look. gray, right? It's like let's take but Mario I love Lopez's that it's sexy. hair. Yeah, and it's. The, I mean, the, the premise of the show is that it, it's like he's very attractive, and he's yeah, it's, a daughter, and, yeah. And, and 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 it's it's the animal magnetism of Colonel Sanders that that bursts the Kentucky Fried Chicken empire. What yes. could be more awesome? What what premise could be more awesome than that? Not for a, a lot. Lifetime show. I mean, also presenting it KFC plus Lifetime. It's like so, I just, I feel like that's the punchline to a stupid joke, but it's real. It's fantastic. It's fantastic there has to be, there yeah. should be, there should be more things like this. I'm going to, I'm going to watch that over and over and over again. Yeah. It's so ridiculous. All right. So we, we, we have a couple of quick things we want to discuss. Yeah. Um, you wanted to talk about Mayor Pete, who's one yeah, of your favorite, favorite people. My fave, one of my faves. So he's named, uh, what was he, what did Biden pick him as? Um, transportation czar, transportation mm. czar. Which, again, I think this whole Rahm Emanuel thing was a fake out. I think it was like, let's dangle someone who's absolute. Wait, is Rahm Emanuel in the cabinet yet? Or no? He hasn't been named anything, so. right? I think he was a fake. I think that was a, a, a trick. And they took one of the most odious people possible and someone who's left decomposing fish, as we mentioned last time, on people's doorsteps. And now we're supposed to be relieved that this McKinsey rat faced, and I say that with a lot of affection, CIA son of a Gramsci scholar uh, is now the transportation pick. And uh, I, I thought that we could play a really good video that I, I tweeted out that um, 
I think I wish that this had been played when Biden made the announcement. Barack Obama called Joe Biden the best vice president America's ever had. But Pete Buttigieg doesn't think much of the vice president's record. Let's compare. When President Obama called on him, Joe Biden helped lead the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which gave health care to 20 million people. And when parkgoers called on Pete Buttigieg, he installed decorative lights under bridges, <laughs> giving citizens of South Bend colorfully illuminated rivers. Both Vice President Biden and former Mayor Buttigieg have taken on tough fights. Under threat of a nuclear Iran, Joe Biden helped to negotiate the Iran deal. And under threat of disappearing pets, Buttigieg negotiated lighter licensing regulations on pet chip scanners. And both Biden and Buttigieg have made hard decisions. Despite pressure from the NRA, Joe Biden passed the assault weapons ban through Congress. Then he passed the Violence Against Women Act. And even when public pressure mounted against him, former Mayor Pete fired the first African-American police chief of South Bend. And then he forced out the African-American fire chief too. We're electing a president. What you've done matters. Uh, that was Biden introducing um, Mayor Pete as his transportation pick. Just kidding. That was a campaign ad. You know, if we if if Biden were on the show, right? Or if we had Biden and Harris on the show, which he is I'm coming sure, on. He's the guest today, isn't he? He's, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, you know what he what 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 Kamala would say if we pressed her on that? She would say it was a debate <laughs> <laughs> or right. it was a primary. Anyway, yeah, that's I mean, there's so much to talk about with Pete, but. I still can't get over the fact that he, that his campaign forged, not signatures, but forged signatories, said black leaders had signed on to a plan, his Douglas plan. Do you remember that? Yeah. And I remember when they used clip art to... to, To, Yes. Right. Because they didn't have anybody else available. So, you know. Certainly not the people they were lying about and claiming had signed this letter. But isn't that stunning? Like... Well, look, it it was part of the argument that I think was used internally within the the Democratic Party to deter them from throwing their weight behind Mayor Pete. Because there there was there yeah, was I guess. there were some people Jesus who were leaning Christ. that way, but it, it was his inability to to get to win black votes that for me this the the Buttigieg nomination I, I think what people should probably be most offended by is the the relatively routine nature of of us nominating people who have no expertise right. whatsoever in in these fields, which are often highly technical and um, you know require years and years and years of life within extremely complicated bureaucracies. Like in that sense, the you know the 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 nomination of a, the of a Raytheon executive for the Pentagon makes a little bit more yeah, sense he, because he they experience. actually know yeah, they actually exactly. know how the contracting thing works. Yeah. But, Department of Transportation, that's a lot of money, a lot of contracts. And, and yes, he's, he's dealt with transportation as a mayor before, but it's no it's nowhere near what you would what you would expect. And and to, to me, it's stuff like this is just an, it's an indication of how unseriously the government and, and even I would even say specifically this this brand of Democrat takes takes ruling because what they what they're really doing is, you know, it's it's a it's an internal um game basically where they're rewarding people for having done x y and z i'm assuming pete taking a dive before south carolina and super super tuesday i'm sorry super tuesday right you know meant that they had had to give him something so why not the department of transportation or whatever yeah totally yeah i think it's a good move and and, 
you know, people should probably be slightly more upset by stuff like by those like clearly just political appointments and then they should be than they are. Yeah. So, okay. Do you want to, do you want to introduce our guests? Sure. So I uh, was really excited to have on Edward Angueso Jr. He is a tech and labor reporter at Motherboard Vice's uh, Vertical. He's the co-host of Machine Kills Pod, a very good podcast. And uh, he's very good on Twitter. Uh, and you can follow him on Twitter, Big Black Jacobin. And also his Twitter photo is really adorable, but that's neither here nor there. He's a great journalist and very prolific. And we're I mean, very happy to have first him. First of all, he's a, he's a labor reporter, which is so... Oh, rare. right. I thought but that was anyway, in, right. It's like yeah. an endangered, you know what? That's one endangered species. Yeah, Donald it Trump should have been touch. like grizzly bears whipping cranes and yeah. labor, labor, labor reporters. Yeah. Right? yeah, no, it's going to be a fun discussion. And we yeah. and we have we have some interesting specific stuff to talk about that's timely with him uh, yes. as well. So uh, time, yeah. let's let's get to it. All right. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Really excited yes, to be talking to you. you. Uh, thanks for having me on. You know, a huge fan of uh, the show and you know, happy to be here. Great. Um, so you are a really prolific journalist. Got, uh, and Matt was chuckling before about the fact that you're a labor reporter because... Because uh, there are thing, none. Yeah. You're like an endangered species. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry. That's not funny, but it... it uh, yeah, no. I know what you mean. But yeah, the, the labor journalists that are around are do, all doing really great work. There's also like another on my team, one girly, who also does... Uh, the same beat, I think, pretty much are overlapping it. It used to be there. It used to be standard at every newspaper right. that they had a labor writer, <laughs> and then they just started vanishing. Like, you know, obviously the fact checkers disappeared, the investigative right. reporters disappeared, but the labor reporters were like one of the first, the first to go, mm-hmm. and when, mm-hmm. when they started cutting down. So it's it's great to see the tradition continuing. Do you guys all know each other? Are you on like a listserv? There's some. Yeah. There's some listservs. Um, and like groups and all that uh, for, you know, I guess people to, you know, keep in touch or help each other amplify stuff. Also, because a lot of the labor reporters are also like, like you said, since they just got pushed out of publications, they're like freelancing, you know, for the most part. Is it tough to get when, when you're pitching labor stories? Do you ever get people openly saying to you, like, we have a tough time drumming up interest in labor stories or do they actually give you reasons or do they or do they? Uh, come up with something, some some excuse that's not. Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, I was hired explicitly for labor and tech. Um, and so I've never really had any problem with it. But I do know that that is a problem that like, some people will not want to talk about or have a hard time getting uh, labor stories put across unless it's like in a very specific confine, like uh, gig economy, or unionization efforts, um, uh, versus like wider questions about like power dynamics in a workplace or, uh, you know, discrimination or um, exploitation of workers that might already have, you know, some semblance of protection. Before we dive into some of these other yeah. issues, do you want to, do you want to start Katie with the thing that. Yeah, that... sure. Yeah. 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 So we're going to talk about your reporting, your articles, but um, definitely wanted to ask you about this tweet that you wrote that um, a lot of people mistook as uh sincere and actually we this is we haven't gotten into this yet so this is a great opportunity um as people may know um the intercept leaked a video i guess i wonder who leaked it to them but there was a zoom call that biden had with um, black leaders civil rights organized civil rights leaders and um a lot of people were 
upset about it, um, either because of what they heard him say, which was pretty damning, I would say, also kind of on brand, but even more on brand than I thought would be possible. And then people were upset that it had been uh, leaked at all. So, so April Ryan, um, the journalist April Ryan, responded to the, to the leak by saying, the question is who leaked this and why? Also, I'm told by a rights leader in that meeting that Joe Biden was being more so passionate than defensive. Can't wait to hear what the Biden camp has to say. And you responded to this by saying, it is irresponsible and sets a dangerous precedent for journalists covering the incoming administration to be able to use secretly recorded conversations in their stories. To parse out Biden's thoughts and anticipate his policy commitments, you must go through proper channels. Then you were at the White House press secretary, the spokespeople for the president and vice president, senior officials with that attribution. And the president's public statements are all designated and responsible sources for information about the president's thoughts and intentions. Revealing a contradiction between Biden's private thoughts and public statements is dangerous <laughs> because it erodes public trust in the president, the office, and the media <laughs> itself. It's pretty inspired, actually. I gotta give it yeah, yeah, right? I, I, I totally, I, I bought fell it. Fell for I, it, right? Yeah, someone, yeah. And, and who, someone else who fell for it, obviously, was April Ryan because she tweeted you hit the nail on the head you hit yeah. the nail in the head but that was a type yeah who does it work for again I'm, I'm sorry. uh is it C cnn right cnn yeah. right yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and she's had you know very under like she's been you know she's been in she's been in some good fights with trump um over yeah like and, and of course they've never used leaked materials and oh i know that's, that's yeah. the best never. thing yeah, yeah like yeah. i mean i i just find it so funny that these people and but when I say these people, I mean the kind of like, well, I hate saying, I sound like a reactionary, like the liberal media, but the media that's from the center to the, before democracy now, like once you get into democracy now, that's a different sort thing. Sort of like but, a blue state media media. Yeah, blue state media, know, yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't know. But it's like, well, I don't want them, to, they always force me to sound like I'm defending Trump, which I'm of course not. But it's like, I have to be like, okay, like you wouldn't have done this or you didn't do this with Trump. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I don't really want to have to be making that point, but it's just such an absurd double standard. Well, I, I, I want to go back first because that, that was actually like a pretty uh, well thought out satire. Did, did you did you did you think I'm going to really sell this thing? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, want, I, I did. I really did want to sell it because I was very irritated with uh, with it. And I was hoping that I would just it would like be so obvious how stupid the idea was if you took it to its logical conclusion um, <laughs> and yeah. did not anticipate that a lot of people were like, yeah, no, you're right. Or, or, or wow, what a hypocrite. Um, yeah, because uh, it's, it's significantly funnier the more you pile on, right? Like the, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it yeah. works better that way. Yeah. yeah. Some people were trying to egg me on to go even further and add like last it's about like they also the any journalist that does this is treasonous but it was like yeah. <laughs> too late at that point <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it, it's true people really think that and they'll say that that's why i think it took people a second to realize and they probably still a lot of people don't know this is one of the things you can clear up on this uh you know this media head <laughs> yeah. but like it was it's it's sad because it's it's well both you're good at satire but it's also what makes it sad is that like it works because there's so many people who would legitimately say this basically word for word. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, there are a lot of like, and that, that stuff also happens. Like people regularly do believe that like the only way to really talk about like military foreign or foreign policy is to have senior officials without attribution and just repeat, right. you know, what they say all the time or that the spokespeople, you can trust them if they're Democrats, but you can't if they're Republicans. Right. Yeah. Um, 
yeah and i feel like if i had left it alone maybe it would have like <laughs> there it would have got more bait you know more people would have like might have uh agreed or tried to support it i hope but you know at a certain point i had to not do that <laughs> yeah do you want to share any of your favorite moments by the way of that uh leaked biden video do you remember any of the parts that you feel like you oh that I think the biracial commercial one. I know, yeah. We, we, yeah, we talked about that on, on uh, my show. But oh, I want to say one more thing. I am incredibly optimistic. Let me tell you why. I'm incredibly optimistic because society is changing. The Z generation and young millennials are changing. Now, you're not going to maybe agree with what I'm about to say, but take a look at what is happening. 15 years ago, could you turn on the television and see three or four out of seven commercials be biracial commercials? What do you think, guys, huh? What do you think? You want to know where society's going. Watch entertainment. Watch the profit motive. Why are these commercials so many of them biracial? Yeah. It's like that, that's so Biden for so many reasons, but I love the stats. I that watch he, TV, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I know. Listen, fat. Listen, fat. And this is in the context of his being asked real substantive questions by civil rights leaders, right? And this is his response I'm optimistic because biracial commercials. And it's so Biden because it's like he just makes up stats out, pulls them out of his ass, right? He's like, He's like four out of seven. Four, three to four out of seven. Well, yeah. Matt, he's he's leaving room for there's not real consensus. Margin it's of somewhere error. between yeah. margin of error. Yeah, three to four out of seven, and like and then he's like twenty, maybe twenty, twenty five percent are ap- actual racist. But like, it, it is funny that this stuff didn't get a whole lot of coverage. I know why didn't it? The guy's already elected. That's the thing. Like I I kind of thought that people were you know we saw this with the whole Hunter Biden thing, right? Like we saw people really uncomfortable with reporting on stuff that would help Trump and harm Biden so close to the election. And I, I thought people would would like light up a little bit on it once he was elected. Um, but I guess that was naive of me. I think it's Georgia, you know, oh, with, yeah, the, her, yeah. with the runoffs looming. Um, yeah. Even I think that colors the, uh, the discussion that happens in this panel where it's like they when, even when he says shit like that, no one goes, <laughs> no one even makes a face. Right. <laughs> you know, just, just stoic, yes, of course. Oh, yeah. Well, that was the funniest part about it. People are like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Like he got positive reinforcement <laughs> twice during that segment itself. But, yeah. I mean, it's it's so funny. I mean, not, not only are labor reporters disappearing, but the the concept of reporters who view themselves as being separate and apart from power uh is is also evaporating a little bit really i mean i think that the mindset of um of people who genuinely think that their role is to protect people like biden from bad information it's i don't know i don't know i'm curious what you think is is that is that more of a thing now than it was in the past or or i think there's definitely been uh for a long time with like mass media systems this idea that like you should in one way or another, or that the people who get selected for to be close to power or reporting on power are going to be ones who are like going to agree to adhere to or really believe in these sort of ideals. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I see it. 
I, th I think also, you know, you see it kind of in reporting on tech, um, and reporting on Silicon Valley, where there's a sort of deference or has been a deference to tech executives and founders um, that I feel like maybe might have also pushed that more onto the general mass of, uh, of reporters. I mean, there's been like, you know, pushback against this. Uh, this reporter for KQED, uh, Sam Harnett, wrote like a really great uh, review of like tech coverage as an example and talking about how a lot of times just like PR points were repeated as stories and press mm -hmm. releases. And I think that's a similar phenomenon in politics. The closer you get to power, the more it can easily become just like repeating what's being fed to you. And, and, and as, as a result of that, you often don't even get stories that otherwise would be reported because they're stories that the people who are running a lot of these companies would just rather you not cover. Like, for instance, you, you did a story about workers in Spain who were suing yeah. Amazon for spying or <laughs> hiring the Pinkertons. I, I totally oh forgot God, the Pinkertons still exist. It's hilarious. So but um, could you, for, for A, could you tell us about that story? And B, uh, can you, what was the other coverage of that like in America? Right. Yeah, so that comes out of, you know, um, a colleague, uh, the other labor reporter at Motherboard, Lauren Gurley, got a lot of documents uh, from Amazon showing that they'd been using Pinkertons and really deep surveillance methods on workers to prevent surveillance, uh, to prevent organizing, uh, and also of unions and of you know social justice groups in the area in the Europe that might in any way, shape, or form connect with the unions or the workers, and they infiltrated warehouses. And um, one of the unions that they targeted ended up filing a lawsuit, and I covered that union in Spain where um, Pinkertons subcontracted to another investigative agency that was involved in like a secret police operation to crush the Catalan independence movement. And so, <laughs> so, they, so they, they, had, they had the right kind of experience. Yeah, they got experts, yeah, you know, <laughs> and they, you know, surveilled uh, worker actions. Uh, they like took notes on journalists that were there and took pictures of them, uh, you know, took down their names or their car uh, make models and license plates to figure out later. They also made sure to take pictures of everyone's faces to use for uh, later act, um, investigations or activities, but they also didn't specify what. And um you know, this sort of stuff is, uh, you know, ridiculous. One, because the company always denies that it does anything like that. And then like a month later, right, we get like this, which is only, I'm sure, the tip of an iceberg. And um, it feels as if not much can be done because of how, how much they, they already exist. So outside of the purview, it seems, of regulations and political um, control, you know, or political checks in any way. I also just wanted to quote you, Ed, and uh, in case people don't know who the Pink about the Pinkertons, um, you write in this piece, which, by the way, is called Spain's Biggest Union is Suing Amazon for Spying on Striking Workers. The Pinkertons are infamous for a long, bloody history of frustrating labor organizing in the late 19th century, going so far as to kill striking workers, conduct sabotage and espionage, and infiltrate organizing efforts with agent provocateurs. In 1893, Congress passed the Anti-Pinkerton Act, forbidding the government from contracting with private detectives. The Pinkertons have spent the 100 plus years adapting, however, and are still widely used by private companies for worker surveillance, as well as um, anticipate and protect corporate clients from violence sparked by climate change. They're horrible. Like, you know, as yeah, I mean, the, the Pinkertons are, are, are famous for being the people who are like, you know, the, on the other side of the 
you know, extremely destructive labor wars with bombings and right. going after going after coal miners and you know they're they're legendary for for exactly that purpose so. why didn't they change their name um you know i don't know because i think the the recoil from them is not shared among like corporations it's really just like you know us you know the people right. the, the corporations are eager for that that sort of thing you know because they, they're good at what they do i mean they like for example with their climate change uh moves or attempts to get into the climate change business they protect and drill you know executives on like what would happen if like you're going to get kidnapped if your company like decides to do something that angers people in the middle of like a, a climate change privatizing water um you know polluting some uh, some a waterway um you know burning a forest or something like that they also try to teach people how to like do hardened bunkers and you know this stuff is like anathema to us but that's that's what, you know, it's, I guess it's important for executives to be able to have a bunker. <laughs> to, yeah, it's a good name. Yeah, it's a, yeah. I mean, also, you know, don't forget the Pickertons have cachet because of the, you know, the whole um, noir movie, uh, like, era. I mean, Dashiell Hammett was a Pinkerton. So he, and a lot of his stories were based on his experiences as a Pinkerton detective. So they, they, they do have this sort of, like, detective a reputation that is probably positive for some people, but um, but uh, again, another example of a story that you wrote that I, I felt like didn't get a whole lot of reach was the lawsuit the Justice Department filed against Google for anti-competitive practices. Could could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know um, the uh, DOJ is filing uh, or filed lawsuits, and this is part of like a you know a growing wave I think of uh, lawsuits coming out of the DOJ and FTC to hold Google and Facebook uh, accountable for agreements they made to corner the market in search, um, to, cor uh, to you know, act in anti-competitive ways against uh, firms or startups that might have undermined part of their market dominance in advertising or in search or in social media or in, um, or in any of the you know, various industries they're trying to reach out into. Um, and I think that you know, the Google one is, interesting because a lot of the immediate reactions seem to be that oh a settlement is just going to be what happens and kind of also ignoring that like it is kind of huge that they've put forward a case um alleging specific wrongs and saying that they're illegal saying that it they've illegally tried to suppress competition put i mean their, they, they use really strong language they were like yeah. calling them an unchecked monopolist right mm -hmm. and, and yeah so. you know it's, no, no, you're you're right. Like the the strong language, I think, is also important. You know, and we're, it's easy, I think, to lose sight of just like how uh, meek this country in general is with large concentrated power, um, and that to take the first steps are encouraging, and can be pushed forward if we have you know if we have like clear sight of what we want, which is you know ideally to break up you know these companies. Is it your sense that there is just going to be a settlement and it'll blow over? I mean, it would like what's what's the what's the end game to that story? I think it depends largely on uh, if they're able to successfully get ahead of it. You know, the Biden administration is hiring a lot of people from Silicon Valley, and like that could be in of itself uh, something that. Uh, 
creates a roadblock to real antitrust action. Um, if enough people spread ideas or ideologies that oppose, you know, the growing sort of, you know, Brandeisian movement that markets are, you know, work best if um, you have a state that can intervene and, and regulate the, the size and control and the concentration and the market power of certain companies. You know, if those ideas are allowed to flourish, then I think that it would not yield in the settlement, or even if that one did, that there are other cases that can be made for anti-competitive and antitrust violations. But I am, I am, I am like cautiously hopeful. Partly, I think it helps also that these companies are just hated, you know, or have right. like a low opinion among the public. And also, I think it also helps that this these movements are coming and, and gaining more traction. It'll be, it'll be like a very vicious battle though, because this is worth hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars. Um, for all of these companies. Could you explain a little bit of, uh, to uh, what, what the specific argument for um, for Google's, I'm sorry, I guess Google slash Alphabet's anti-competitive practices were? Because I, it had something to do with, with the way they, they use the Android uh, property, right? Like uh, how exact, what, what exactly is the argument? So there's an argument, one, that they were able to sit down and make agreements with Apple to pay them to have the search engine as the default search engine. Right. Uh, They paid billions of dollars into that. And then there's another that they were able to make it so that their search engine wasn't able to be removed, uh, so that they would be able to boot off competitors, uh, that they would be able to use their own search results to redirect back to their own um, products and services. Um, and prioritize them even over more relevant results from another competitor or business. Um, and that they've also created an infrastructure in which companies do have to rely on uh, them for getting before people, uh, either through advertising, right, or through space um, on some Google product or service. And that Google can use this similar to the way Amazon does to gain insights about competitors and figure out ways to preempt, you know, their attempts at expansion or to undermine them and attract their audiences to the company itself. Another story that that, uh, was relatively uncommented upon, but but you did comment on uh, (laughs) was, uh, and actually so did we, to our credit was Barack Obama's uh, discussion of drones in his oh. book. Oh, yeah, that was great. Uh, could, Ron could you, made me do it. Ron made yeah, me could, do could, it. Could you talk a little bit about why? Because that's a little bit outside your normal purview. Like, what, what, what made you decide to, to write that story? Um, I'm a huge fan of this biography that was written by Obama by David Garrow, which uh, covers his life up until... I'd say up until about the presidency. Um, and it's like a really ends up being like a very deeply critical one of him that like dismisses Obama's previous biographies as fiction. Um, and, you know, I was interested in bi- in Obama's because I was like, oh, well, is he going to like affirm any of that? Is he just going to continue the, the fictionalization? Is he going to give insight? And the first thing I was interested in the drones, because I feel that that is easily one of the more indefensible parts of his presidency, uh, despite, you know, defenses that his supporters give. But there's almost no mention of it, right? And there's no mention to the, you know, thousands of people killed by uh, hundreds in the minimum of civilians, many of them children, 
there's no mention to the fact that like the first drone strike he did was missed its intended target and you know tore family apart killed the, the father and like maimed almost everyone else in the house um there's no mention of you know there's like vague mentions to how the populations of various countries didn't like it he vaguely mentions that like the drone strikes caused anti-American sentiment in Pakistan and made it complicated for him to extract like a CIA agent. Um, but you know, the drone program, it's, it's, it's almost not talked about at all. And when it is, it's like really cold, you know, he like talks about how he was forced to kill children that he wanted to just like help, you know, yeah. Yeah. No, no, Nobel peace prize winning uh, Barack Obama. Yeah. Right. He's, he said it, it was like something that didn't give him, yeah joy or something like that what did what did he what did he say it brought me no joy what did he say and and he really he wanted to save he wanted to help children and and help countries that were uh hungry that was what he wanted to do but he wound up having to you know do this and in part because rom knew that you couldn't have a liberal president not do this and it's also like that sounds like bullshit because he said publicly and made jokes about how he's good at killing people. Oh, my Trump. God. Yeah. Do you remember that? The Jonas yeah. Brothers, right? That was so disgusting. When you know? he, he did, Matt, do you remember this? He joked yeah. about how he, he, he said something about how, you know, his daughters like the Jonas Brothers and then how he was going to, like, you know, subject them to his drone program or something. Like, he made a joke about it. It reminded me a little bit of when, when Bush was looking under his desk for the WMDs. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. But this was, yeah. The Jonas Brothers are here. They're out there somewhere. Sasha and Malia are huge fans. But uh, boys don't get any ideas. I have two words for you. Predator drones. (laughs) You will never see it coming. (laughs) You think I'm joking? Can you imagine being one of the people like you, like you mentioned, like who knew, like Come the victim? Come on, victims? I admire that. That's hilarious. Well, yeah. Sorry, I, I again, I've seen this clip before, so I got all my laughter, my, my hysterical yeah. laughing laughter fit out of my system. But imagine, like, imagine being one of the people you interviewed, Matt, who knew it was like the from the schedule. They're they're familiar with the droning U.S. droning schedule, but like hearing that. I know, yeah. He's getting laugh lines from it. The next thing is going to be the him sitting down with uh, Jimmy Fallon and having them do a routine about it or something like that. Oh, right? how you about know, like with a joystick or something? Yeah, you know? yeah. There's other funny. Another moment where he was like, um, you know, I didn't expect to be so good at killing people. You know, I didn't know this was one of my strengths. And it's like, <laughs> well, you find that you find discover things about yourself when you when placed in difficult situations, right? right? Yeah. Presidents do the darndest things. Yeah. It's funny, I, I did a drone story a couple of years ago that covered the Obama period, and I, I interviewed one of the families that had brought a suit against the, the government during oh, that wow. time. And they the, the relative of one of the people who got killed talked about how they immediately knew that it was the Americans um, who had done it because uh, Amer- only American drones operate at night in, the, in Yemen, right? So what that tells you is that it's so common Mm-hmm. Uh, right. That it's you know it's not something that they, they didn't even have to to think about who could possibly be you know guilty in the situation, which must mean that it's it, that's the impression of people all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. Or in the, in, the, in that region anyway, which is a, a crazy thing if we're not talking about it more. I don't know. 
but I, it's it's like it before I w- I chose to study you know politics I was I was an econ I was interested in a foreign policy and you know one of the things I feel that is always so obvious is just like the sheer disregard for yeah. civilian life but also the ridiculous arguments that people twist into uh, themselves into making to defend it you know like when I wrote that article I got a lot of uh, pushback from people insisting that, you know, I was not covering Trump's drone strikes or that I was being unfair to Obama. And it's like, yeah, I'm talking about Obama because he killed them. <laughs> and that's the, right. and it's not in this book. Um, and it's also uh, coming from a president that like emphasized uh, how peaceful we were going to be and how measured his responses would be. And it ended up just radically expanding an assassination program. Yeah, and that's the normal to which we're supposed to return, right? Like, that's right. what people are celebrating. So maybe we should look at that also. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, by the way, I have some of the, the quotes from Obama. Um, here's what he said. Um, In places like Yemen, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, the lives of millions of uh, young men had been warped and stunted by desperation, ignorance, dreams of religious glory, the violence of their surroundings, or the schemes of older men. They were dangerous, these young men, often deliberately and casually cruel, casually cruel, still in the aggregate, at least I want somehow to save them, send them to school, give them a trade, drain them of the hate that had been filling their heads. And yet the world they were part of and the machinery I commanded more often had me killing them instead. But the, but the work was necessary and it was my responsibility to make sure our operations were as effective as possible. Which is why they, like, for example, would define combatants as like anyone who could pick up a gun essentially, you know, anyone from 18 to, you know, an ambiguous upper range. I mean, it's yeah. a, the, every bit of sh- or shred of evidence we have about the internal process, about the deliberations that were made, about the choices that were made just speaks to like a process that was you know, sloppy. At, I feel sloppy at best and, and uh, obfuscates it probably will prevent us from ever really knowing how many civilians were killed. And they, and they were like unsettlingly, like jocular about it, yeah. right? Like they mm-hmm. nicknamed it Terror Tuesdays, you know, mm-hmm. when they would oh my get God. together for those meetings. You didn't know about that? No, Terror right. Tuesdays? Yeah, that's when they would get together to decide who was going to be on the list and who wasn't. And the list, by the way, they called it the disposition matrix, if I'm not mistaken, which was, a, <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that was the kill list. But um, but anyway, so, uh, so uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, do you consciously go out of your way to pick counter narrative stories because you, you, you kind of do a lot of them like it, it seems like you've you sort of perceived your mission a little bit to you know, push back uh when when there's a story that either isn't being done or or should be done like for instance the the when uh, anonymous was unveiled and it turns out to be miles My- taylor and you you wrote a a pretty powerful argue, article arguing that this person should be thought of in a different way now that we know who it is uh, can you talk a little bit about your thought process in doing that story and what the reaction was? Yeah, you know, my, one of the more frustrating things over the years is like seeing people involved in crimes, uh, specifically against like civilians and, and hurting them as much as possible. Um, and and just saying it was their job and that like, what else would you expect them to do? And Miles Taylor was particularly infuriating uh, because uh, involved in this detention uh, you know, program, building the camps, providing cover for them at every out, uh, outset, being part of like the close inner circle and at no point ever having like any sort of concern, uh, you know, moral dilemma. It, and it's only when his like paycheck is threatened and he's, 
and it's the there's a risk that he might not be able to like go to some think tank or some fellowship or some foundation that he suddenly speaks up and profits i think perceptively on uh the willingness of liberals to you know see someone bad profess for uh their guilt, right, or seem to profess their guilt and then want to be, like, accepted back in. And I think, you know, in a lot of places, and especially it's there, there, it was like an intersection of things that bothered me with, like, the way foreign policy elites are, can operate in, like, fundamentally moral ways, and then the way that tech um, giants and, and people in tech can also, like, aid in a bet, like, you know, immoral stuff. Um, and it it feels like two sides of the same coin to me where it's just like, if you have power um, and if you've done evil and horrendous things, then all you really need to do is like, say, not even really say you're sorry, but say that it made you feel bad, you know, doing it. Um, and that's enough. So I try, I hope to like in those stories and in other stories in tech, like counter uh, narratives where it's like, we should believe this propaganda, we should believe this um, redemption arc, we should believe like this nonsense that we're being fed. Yeah, and for those who don't know the background, this is the this is the person who wrote the article in the New York Times that mm -hmm. was an it was an editorial that's is a, I think it was part of the resistance. Part, part, part of the resistance right. to, and inside the Trump administration, right? At the same right. time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, pre I'm pretty sure you got an enormous book deal too. Huge. Yeah, he huge, did. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but the like instantaneously, once that article came out, there, there was only one take on it. Like this person's a hero, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it was it was almost like people weren't allowed to make the obvious observation that maybe a person who was working for Donald Trump, you know, might have multiple sides to his or her character, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. it was just very strange. Uh, My and, favorite was the and he, and he was a Google lobbyist too, right? Yes. yes. Yeah, Google brought him on to be a lobbyist as well. And that Afterwards. when employees tried to organize against that, they were fired or, you know, punished and retaliated against by Google. And Google got, you know, uh, held to account for that by the uh, NLRB and was found to like have been illegally uh, retaliated and surveilling employees. What do you, uh, I mean, I love when, when Bolton was like, I'm working for Trump. I never knew, like, I got to write this tell-all book because how was I to know? Like, literally, what about Trump didn't you know coming into the administration? Like, you know, what was the thing that you learned? You had to work for him to learn. That gave us one of the, uh, this kind of funny uh, tweet by Trump where he said what that John Bolton's only job in the White House was going, oh, let's go to war with Iran. I know. It was, I was, I was so team Trump. Sorry. Sorry about this. But, like, I was so hard team Trump in that battle. Because, like, I mean, in that area, he's, like, so much – I mean, it's so funny watching them talk about each other. And I'm, like, with Trump, I'm, like, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. He, he yeah. is a total hawk. Yeah, terrible, terrible. All these people have tried and will, you know, because of how bad Trump was to, I guess, like, the, the norm or the typical right. sensibilities, um, uh, try to, you know, uh, pursue redemption, right? Um Lincoln Project, Grifters, uh, Insiders and DHS. Um, I'm sure William Barr and Mike Pence yeah. and, you know, every single senator that's <laughs> afforded. Like, all of them, in one way or another, will eventually find a way to, like, get back yeah. to the promised land. We should predict the next tell-all books that are going to do well. Because what do we have? We have um, San Mc um, Huckabee Sanders, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Bolton, mm -hmm. uh, the anonymous person. Um, mm -hmm. Who else? What's what's Pence is going to be like? I think Pence is 
I, I don't know. Maybe Pence might not do one. I feel like he wants it. You know, there is this uh, really interesting piece I read years ago saying that it's like God's plan for Pence or something. And it was talking about how like deeply religious he was and how he was almost at the end of like a political career and Trump, you know, chosen for the vice presidency. Right. And then that like resurged in him a belief that like, I'm maybe I should, maybe I God's, should run later or something. Right. Yeah. He has to check with mother. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> forgot about that matt do you matt do you call your wife mother ever look when you have kids you, you will oh yeah that's true that's true but that's not but that's different yeah. my dad when i was growing, dad my dad still was like ask mommy but that's very right, different yeah. you did another story that i thought was um that was really interesting in that because uh i feel like it presages something that's probably going to happen all over which was it was about the use of uh ring cameras and Jackson, Mississippi. You know, we're, we're obviously in this age of uh, incredibly sophisticated surveillance techniques, but we haven't yet taken that step that, like, for instance, Great Britain has taken, where they overtly just have CCD and CCTV cameras everywhere, and we're going to be constantly monitoring things. What does that story in Mississippi mean, and, and does it fit into a larger movement that um, is visible in any way? Yeah, I think the Mississippi, you know, the Jackson, Mississippi story is, you know, concerning for a few reasons. One, because the mayor was elected on this promise to be like the most radical oh, mayor yeah. in the country. Um, and within two years had carried out pretty extensive partnerships between the police and Amazon to put uh, private surveillance in stores as part of a pilot program. And also to like build up platforms that the city might be able to use to get surveillance from these cameras um, upon asking. I think um, it's also concerning because, you know, the surveillance itself is um, a problem. It's also likely illegal. There are states where you can't just record anyone who passes by your property. Um, but there's also like, so what? You know, like they just do it in so, such a volume um, that it is hard to keep up with, hard to contest. It's not clear where the lines are drawn between like what they're right to do as a, as a commercial uh, vendor versus like a growing to be a private and powerful entity. Um, and it's also concerning because the surveillance of course is, you know, riddled with racial bias right now, but eventually at some point, I think it is safe to assume that they might be able to root that out. And then when they do that, if it's already pervasive and it's already justified in the general public imagination, it will be expanded even further. Right. Because a lot of the, the pushback to it is the racial bias um, and not a lot or not as much as there should be concern about what mass surveillance does to people uh, knowing that, you know, privately and publicly they can be under watch at any point um, or what it does to a culture in which like you're encouraged to snitch on your neighbors, snitch on workers, snitch on people who might be suspicious in a community. Um, you know, we could get rid of the racial bias in the machine. It's not going to get rid of it in the society at large. And it's also not going to get rid of like the poisonous and toxic effects of it after that. It reminds me of uh, uh, Adolf Reed talks and writes about this, about the disparity discourse and the disproportionality discourse where it's like, OK, like, yeah, uh, it's bad that poverty is disproportionately, um, you know, that there are racial disparities that reflected in poverty. It's like but like the goal isn't to have a more diverse um, pop people group of people in poverty. Like right. the goal is actually to address poverty. And mm -hmm. this is like kind of like that on a different level. You know, the goal isn't to just have a less racist right. uh, exactly. surveillance state. It, you know, the problem is the surveillance state. Right. And that's um, a problem. You know. Some people do want 
more uh, less racist surveillance state right and you know and yeah. that is uh and 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 believe that it's not quite surveillance if it's not racist and if it and if you can make it objective and right. and and, uh, and all seeing and then it just becomes like another safety net right right yeah it's like again it's a merit merit mer- meritocratic right uh, everyone earns the right yeah to exactly poor. yeah yeah or a poor yeah yeah so fall through the safety net yeah do you find that i guess the minute i hate this word but do you find that like traditionally liberal news audiences mm-hmm. perceive tech companies differently than they might say pharmaceutical companies oh, or banks question. or whatever it is like is is there is there a um a decreased willingness to think about problems of corruption or malfeasance at companies like that because there's they believe that these companies are basically benevolent yeah i think you know there is something to be said about the fact that since a lot of tech companies offer service seemingly for free um where the individual is the product that they've cultivated goodwill um or an assumption of benevolence or or there's a higher threshold of proof you have to provide to prove that there's nefarious action going on, even after the past decade or so of documented evidence. Um, And there's also the fact that a lot of tech companies are moving into the gig economy space where they're offering to people really cheap and subsidized uh, access to servants or access to labor that will, you know, offload the burden of their own life uh, onto another person, right? And, you know, I think of, for example, in California, right, um, there was a receptiveness to a very huge propaganda campaign by Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and Instacart and Postmates, partly because of how cheap and expansive the rides have become and the delivery services have become in the face of a transportation system that's been undercut in the face of um, also um, unstable or delivery systems if they're public uh, because they've been under attack uh, with austerity measures that um, these companies have capitalized on and said, you know, hey, look, like we are part of your urban experience. We can provide you with like a place to go to if you're in a new city. We can provide you with like food. We can provide you with a ride. So I think it's like by embedding themselves into the the lives and the lifestyles of these, you know, traditionally liberal audiences, they've kind of tried to activate them as, uh, you know, partisans in their fights and their political battles. You mentioned before the sheer quantity of information that they're taking in when uh, in surveillance. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Project Aria, which I didn't know about before I looked up your stories? Like, I, uh, basically, this is like a, a, uh, a Facebook uh, test yeah. to see how much information they could possibly theoretically <laughs> take in. So or, it's like uh, they're selling it as like we want to uh, map out virtually the entire world, you know. So they'll just give people <laughs> at the earliest iteration, they were just going to give people headsets and you just walk into any place and walk around and videotape everything. And then they will digitally rebuild it for a map of the entire world, um, which ostensibly so that it can improve location services, it can improve uh, uh, maps, it can pr- uh, improve information that people just have in general about a city, but in reality is going to be used more or less to help them figure out what new services they should or can provide. Um, you know, right now, for example, they're, they're dipping into 
uh, gig company work, right? The information reported that they're trying to figure out how to compete with TaskRabbit and Angie's List. And it's not hard to see how Project Aria, you know, mapping out extensively some area or some place could collect information for Facebook to be like, oh, this area would be ripe for us to, you know, put some or to establish some, you know, center for gig work, right? Uh, for house cleaning or house cleaning depot, if there are a lot of homes in the area, right? For gig work, for construction or for, you know, driving people around or for whatever job that they'll, uh, people will need. Um, and it's a disaster. It's a privacy nightmare because uh, it has been a fight to get them to say, like, let's not record everybody's faces, you know, <laughs> and let's, let's ask for consent about whether or not you can be recorded. And it's also just a nightmare in terms of like, why does a company that sh we should not trust in any way uh, get to decide we're going to just like record everything and, and, and figure out maybe we'll give it to you. you know? I would definitely fight for flattering filters. I would yeah. demand that for when I'm being photographed. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the secondary danger, and I, um, I don't know that you've written about this actually, but uh, so you have these, these companies that are taking in massive amounts of, of information um, about their customers and about the people their customers interact with. Uh, so they're compiling these enormous databases that for the most part, just passively sit there. Uh, but to what extent do these companies have um, arrangements with law enforcement or international law enforcement? Um, like, how much do we know about uh, any other uses that, that that those databases might have apart from the commercial applications? Right. You know, we've got some, we got like the first hints of this, right, with the Snowden documents and the discussion about how tech hub Trader. Traitor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, is Trump deliberating on whether he's going to pardon him or is that just like he's trying that, to get yeah. it we, at, Before you leave, we should ask you for your, sorry to interrupt, but I'll write this down as a note. We should get you to, to share with us your favorite, what, what, woke, what ways you want Trump to, to own the libs. But I'll write that down before um, you leave. Pardoning yeah. Snowden would be a good one. <laughs> yeah, pardoning yeah. Snowden is one of our, our go-tos, yeah. Um, yeah, I think... Um, I think that we got hints of it with the Snowden documents and that, but these, the companies then said, Oh, we're not doing it anymore. We'll never do it again. You know, we were forced to actually, we didn't want to, even though they did want to. Um, but I think that it is from what we've seen, um, there's going, there's closer and closer ties. You know, Google's trying to become a military defense contractor as is Microsoft and Amazon, uh, as are these, you know, gig companies uh, that are trying to do services with uh, federal agencies as uh, I think that, you know, we can expect um, there to be ways to figure out how to, you know, make money off of that data. Because I mean, already the, the primary model of a lot of these companies is, all right, we collect a lot of information that's in your home. Um, your conversations, your interactions, your behavior. And we use that to improve our uh, assistance, right? We use that to improve Alexa. We use that to improve the Google One uh, Assistant. We use that to improve um, Cortana. And then we um, offer more improved versions to businesses for them to structure uh, their operations around. And you, so we have you train it for free and then we sell you know, the trained product to companies. And I think that, that sort of model of like extracting data, sitting on it, and then figuring out what to do with it with, in partnership with the government is going to become more and more common, you know, with companies, especially like uh, IBM, um, like Intel, that are uh, trying to figure out 
how to create ecosystems that just suck up data from cities and then offer it to firms that say, hey, like let's privatize like parking space along the sidewalk so that it can be optimized. Hey, let's privatize like sewer system so that we can optimize it. Hey, let's privatize, you know, parking lots or this or that um, and, and balkanize more of the city, balkanize more of uh, daily life. What's, what's to stop law enforcement from saying, um, okay, well, we have a search warrant. Um, we'd like to get access to every conversation that ever took place in this house because of X, Y, and Z. I mean, is, has, has there ever been a situation like that where... I mean, so like one, I think good example that I think suggests that if there may not be too much preventing them from doing that. It's like, you know, uh, when it was found out that the DA was using stingrays uh, to like track uh, people and then um, arrest them and then using the stingray data to to go back in I time. I thought you meant literal stingrays, sorry. <laughs> no, they're like, they're these big ass boxes that just suck up like all the uh, communications in an area because they act like a, a, a cell tower. And they were using them to then be like, okay, we didn't have, enough to justify warrant but five days ago they were doing this so we can just say like that was what got us to be suspicious and oh you know that's when we figured out they were you know a, a criminal or they were doing something that we arrested them for i don't i think that what we are supposed to believe is stopping them from doing it is that the tech companies won't cooperate you know famously apple won't like cooperate with federal authorities on like breaking open its phones or says that it won't uh, for breaking open its phones um, like with the San Bernardino shooter. I think we're also supposed to believe that, you know, the court system or at least the the overt court system would deny such an attempt, but they have secret courts. They have agreements with these tech companies. They also have technology that can break open these phones. So I don't know. It depends. Maybe I guess like, do they want a warrant? <laughs> you know, like if they don't right. want the warrant, then maybe they'll just go for it. Also wanted to know, do you have two uh, recent articles that are, I think kind of go interestingly hand in hand in an interesting way. One of them is um, about uh, Uber. And um, you, I think it's your most recent one. It's about Uber and the subheading is Uber said Proposition 22 would prevent price increases but hiked fares to roll out benefits that come with a boatload of uh, caveats. And then Uber Eats lets anyone identify as the owner of a black-owned restaurant. Uh, several restaurants listed as being black owned on Uber Eats appear not to be owned by black people, which is makes me want it. Can we open up a useful idiots uh, restaurant, Matt, and declare it a black owned restaurant? You could. I don't know if that's a good idea. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that it would be easier to do the second thing, perhaps, than the first thing. But, um, you know, I wanted to ask you about Uber and, and Prop 22. And speaking of the disparity and disproportionate uh, discourse or something I like to call woke washing, um, there is a huge effort, right, to use um, black people in advertisements for Prop 22. But I mean, Biden must be pleased as punch. Right. Uh, I'm not sure if he'd rather biracial uh, advertisements <laughs> or black. But um, mm -hmm. can you talk about both what's happening with Uber, um, what Prop 22 did and how kind of identity politics were weaponized in the service of those yeah, you know, there's this really interesting article by an early Uber investor where he says that Uber's in a PR crisis and what it needs to do is to become ruthlessly woke. And oh my God, that's so, <laughs> so great. Yeah. Ruthlessly woke. That is I'm going to start up. using that all the time. Ruthlessly oh, woke, I, yeah. I, I got to get that. Yeah. Did you write about that? 
Yeah, I, I wrote a bit about it because Uber did do that. So, for example, one thing that Uber did was um, in 2017, the ha- uh, there was a hashtag delete Uber that went you know viral because people had believed that it was trying to break a strike um, by taxi drivers who wouldn't pick up people in protest of uh, uh, Trump's Muslim ban, right? And instead of you know shying away from that hashtag, they put up billboards saying, if you don't think that Black people deserve equal access or economic opportunity to delete Uber, you know, just like a very, they earned their salary on that one because that was like just a very quick turnaround. Uh, there was a lot of backlash, but it, I think it did the purpose. It's part of the campaign they did with Lyft where it's like, we are providing upward mobility that you can't get because you live in a community where you don't have buses, right? Or uh, public transit and we get you access to your jobs, to your um, schools. But at the same time, these companies, uh, charge more price. They hike their fares if you're in a black or right. uh, you know, non-white neighborhood and uh, tend to leave that out. In California, the, in Prop 22, they also more or less paid for companies, uh, paid for groups, uh, you know, grassroots groups and civil rights groups to endorse them. Like they paid off the leader of the NAACP about like $85,000, right, uh, to her, you know, own firm. And then she ended up, you know, uh, going full swing and supporting them. And like that sort of, you know, pay to play arrangement is, you know, so it's disgusting and so deeply cynical because the vast majority of Ubers and Lyft drivers are, you know, black or brown. Right. And those drive, those are people who, even if they were employees already uh, are poor or have less access or protection from discrimination and access to health care and as contractors. Um, have even less access to the resources that Uber is claiming to give them. So to buy off support for them, to use them as tokens and advertisements, uh, to center their voices, to say that, you know, this campaign, which is really about exploiting, you know, everyone is really about protecting black and brown workers is, uh, is I think like a perfect sort of like deployment of identity politics by a corporation to, um, you know, convince people that it's fine, that it's on the right side of history. While making the law. I mean, it's always ironic. Like there are two levels. One is when it's just like a, when it's super, super ruthless, right? And, and sorted when it actually like disproportionately hurts the very people that they're, because that's not always how, I mean, identity politics can be weaponized in various ways, but this is like the real home run way, which is when you're actually harming the very communities that you're claiming to be centering um, I mean, you're centering them as victims, I guess. Yeah. You're centering them mm-hmm. as people you're screwing over. So gross. Oh well, I mean, we God. saw the same thing with, you know, some of the banks that had used predatory subprime right. practices, right? Like, you know, Wells Fargo got busted for that whole, what, what did they call them? Ghetto loans uh, right. scenario. And then, you know, but they're all, after the George Floyd incident, they were all adopting black lives matter slogans i mean it's an it's an effective tactic for, yeah, for these companies really right i mean yeah. uh, it, it it i mean it's actually it's a good question for you it's and this this will be okay this is the moment where i say this is my last question, no, last question. Uh, i have ten, 17 more yeah, yeah so so um you know as a labor reporter um is there tension between the way um like social justice issues are covered and the way labor issues are covered it feels to me like in some cases like uh, a lot of these companies would prefer that we be talking about A instead of B, and um, and that there there's an intention there 
to avoid talking about workplace or, or labor issues by highlighting this other uh, factor. Um, what I mean, as somebody who covers labor, do you, do you think that's a trend that's industry-wide or, or, or is it just scattered companies that do that? I think, I think definitely there are companies in attempts to kill unionizing efforts, to get rid of scrutiny of their workplace conditions. We'll talk about diversity, right? And I think the, the way to always avoid that trap is to just talk to workers and focus on the workers themselves. Because if you start focusing on diversity at the executive level, diversity at the manager level, or opportunity of, or access, right, versus like the reality of, um, then it's easy to get lost in um, the narratives that they have ready to throw at you, right? I think, like you were talking about with the disparity, disposition, like a lot of these places do in one way or another want to try to sell it that, you know, like we're not perfect, but everybody is getting fucked, you know, at the same level. And so it's fine. Like you shouldn't, um, crit- you know, criticize it too much. But um, I think, a, you know, an easy way to avoid that trap is to just constantly be uh, focusing on this system that doles out, um, you know, exploitation and suffering and, and misery um, to anyone who's in front of it. Uh, because that's when you'll discover, yeah, there, there are instances where certain groups are, uh, getting hurt the most. And then you also discover instances that are providing context in terms of poor workplace or in terms of maybe racist practices or sexist practice, practices or, um, you know, horrible conditions in one way or another that are, you know, continuing to feed up and prop up uh, what we're witnessing. And I just want to know if you had anything uh, you want, any comments uh, about Biden's, uh, late, you know, uh, cabinet picks. <laughs> any of your favorites? Oh, yeah, my favorite is uh, Mayor Pete, uh, who loves uh, SimCity and is going to use those lessons, I'm sure, <laughs> to, uh, I don't even know what he would want to do uh, as uh, Department of Transportation Secretary. But I think it's actually kind of on brand. I was thinking about it because of Biden and even Harris's kind of commitment to or opposition to busing. It's kind of on brand to, to put a very, uh, prop, someone with a problematic record yeah. Um, in terms of race on their transportation. Yeah, you know, that, yeah, same. You know, it was him or Rahm Emanuel, right? It's like the guy who um, fired all the black uh, uh, heads of the police at the uh, fire department. Right. Uh, and had a pretty horrible relationship with the uh, you know black population in the city, or it's the guy who like covered up the murder right. of a black teenager. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're both so. I mean, you can't go wrong with either one, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. that's that's exactly. And it's so cynical. Like I, people were saying this that they thought that Rahm Emanuel was just a kind of a give. What's the word? Like a like a trial balloon. Yeah. So that people would be very relieved that it's not him, and now we can be really happy that it's Pete. Um, yeah, that, that people thought that happened also with uh, Brian Deese. You remember uh, the BlackRock guy that he was his name was oh, yeah. for one thing, and he ended up getting uh, the NEC instead of the OMB, um, and they they <laughs> gave OMB to Nira. It's yeah, I think Nira yeah. oh is definitely God. my favorite pick. Actually, Nira is uh, a yeah. aspiration of posters everywhere. And yes, um, you're right to ship posters. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, that is a place where representation really is important. Yeah, <laughs> people, people who people who uh, stay up all night tweeting, engaging in Twitter fights, and punch their um, and punch subordinates in the chest now can 
look up to her and say that they too can become, right. you know, high functioning. They can see themselves in her. Also, I mean, this whole thing of lived, the lived experience discourse, mm-hmm. that's clearly a talking point that Biden people have been like, you know, you, when you hear like Mimi Hirono saying it and also like MSNBC reporters saying it and a lot of people on Twitter, Neera Tandon's lived experience, which would be a good thing if her lived experience living on, you know, in section in section eight housing as her as her lived experience uh appraisers bring up if that led her to then defend things like section eight housing instead of urge them to be cut and it's also like why are we constantly talking about this and like the person we're defending is like a millionaire you know like why like what the yeah we really talk about lived experience you know would it not make sense to actually if they're really about the, uh, you know, sticking to the diversity, then hiring people who are, or choosing people who are not, um, you know, wealthy consultants and, right. and insiders for the party. But oh yeah, that's like, I mean, that that to me, not to be cynical, it's like, yeah, of course that won't happen. But yeah, yeah it's no. a good rhetoric. I mean, yeah, but but uh, yeah, how about the li- your recent lived experience, like, or you know, defending uh, austerity or stealing Libya or Libya's oil after a bombing it yeah that'll be good i think yeah she'll be um she'll help us do all sorts of new crimes and uh fund them in smart and creative ways that, yeah she is innovate she is a disruptor she's yeah. like a real create uh a corporate creative yeah all right well cool well, thank you uh, so well, much th- yeah, thank you so much for great. coming by and yeah, uh and, and we'll try not to continue the trend of of not having uh labor reporters as guests so we'd love yeah. to have you on again yeah at some we'll point. have you on again and oh, have also your colleague yeah um yeah, no, that would be dope. Yeah, but always, I really had a great time talking with y'all. You know, I'd love to come on anytime you want me. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Hey, well, thanks th- for coming on. Th- yeah. Thanks, thanks for coming on. And uh, well done with that. Uh, that tweet, I know. That, that tweet thing. That, yeah. That was, eight- that was uh, I got to say. Yeah. Uh, I had, well I, had, I had I had a moment of like, wow, I'm not sure I could have pulled that off. That, that, that was, <laughs> and April you know. Ryan, you're welcome to come on the show, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And come back anytime. Yes. Thanks so much, Ed. Ed is a great guest. Yeah. I learned a lot. He's really your, uh, he's at, I'm sure you love the term, at the intersection. But Matt, he's really at your your intersection of tech and, and, uh, what is it? Uh, Surveillance. And and surveillance, yeah. Um, Foreign policy, yeah. No, and and, and what I like about him is that um, he, he, he seems to go out of his way to to do the things that they're they probably don't want him to do. Yeah, so yes. that, that 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 is that's always a telltale sign of that this is a person who belongs in, in this business. So anyway, that was great. Um, uh, everybody, stay safe over the holidays. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, don't watch any of those other uh, shows because they hate Christmas. The Pod Save America they people hate right now are plotting to kill Santa Claus. Yeah. They hate Christmas and they hate Hanukkah. And Hanukkah. Right. Right. And any of the other holidays. Uh, otherwise, have a great holiday and we'll see, um, we'll see you again on the other side. Great. I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.